You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Habercroft. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast. My name is Ryan McGee and I'm coming to you from Richmond, Virginia and joining me from Southampton, England is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, what is going on? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, what are we in the start of the fifth month of lockdown now? Twelfth uh, month, fifth month. Um <laughs> I don't know. It's I I don't know anymore, man. I just go with the flow. You're you're way more. I think I think we were to go back and listen to all the episodes from like start of lockdown to whenever it ends. It'll be like a very interesting portrait of mental health. And at the start of lockdown, I think I was positive and you were like despondent. Yes. And now you seem more positive and I've just given up all hope. I don't know if I'm positive. I've just kind of like accepted my fate. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm at the depression stage. I think I was probably denial <laughs> back in March. <laughs> and maybe you were already depression. So maybe you're just further along the uh, the five stages of grief. Yeah. So, maybe. Yeah. I, the Stockholm syndrome is starting to kick in. I'm, I've, I've given in and I now identify with my captor, COVID-19. Yeah. So, on that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, this is, uh, so we're in, the, we're in the market for a new house and it's really affected kind of my, my house hunting. Like my wife now wants, you know, a community and, you know, this nice night and a nice neighborhood that has like a, community pool and community stuff to do and i'm more and more looking like out in the middle of nowhere no one within four miles of you (laughs) just embracing embracing my embracing my inner jj rousseau (laughs) yeah so you're just going full back to the land i kind of i like that vibe we're we're going on a holiday we're we're basically trying to break the two mile radius around my house that i haven't left since march and uh, <laughs> and so we've just like we've found a, a cabin up in Yorkshire, which is like north north uh, east England. That's uh, basically on the middle of nowhere, but it looks nice. We can go like walking in some national parks and stuff. But we're we're going away from everybody too. Didn't uh, didn't y'all's health minister have to resign for doing something like that? Uh, that was during no. He, first of all, he didn't have to resign. <laughs> First of all, it was the prime minister's advisor. Second, he actually had COVID. <laughs> Why are we laughing prime, at this? He got it from the prime minister. Then he got in the car and drove 240 miles north uh, to Durham, which is where his family's from. And then he claimed that he had just stayed on his family's estate. But then people started filing reports about how they'd seen him walking around Durham. And then the the kind of thing that got him really mocked was... Uh, he was seen at a town, I think, called Barnet Castle, which is like 30 miles from Durham. So not only had he gone 240 miles, he was also seen out 30 miles walking around there. 
and uh, he had a press conference and he said the reason he drove to Barnett Castle was because COVID apparently affects your eyes. And so he wanted to do a day trip to test his eyesight before getting on the highway. I mean, that's some, that, as a marketing and PR person, I'm impressed. <laughs> this is the, the best spin doctor in the country. You got to keep it's, in mind. Oh, that's good stuff. <laughs> oh, man. That's good. Yeah. Oh, um, we had a good discussion with the Game of Stones guys on our Monday Facebook, whatever you, whatever we're calling this thing that we're doing weekly now on Mondays with the Game of Stones guys. We did. And yeah, we actually we talked about curling for the first time since we started doing this. Yeah, we had a bit of curling. Well, we did a little bit last week too, but yeah, this the last two weeks we've transitioned to curling a bit. Um, I'm not sure if Scott's going to keep to his vow of getting a tattoo if we get a thousand views. Yeah. So uh, those those of you that aren't aware, what we've been doing for the last few weeks is every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern time uh, on the East Coast in North America, we uh, we've been doing like a Facebook Live deal with the with Sean and Scott Graham, who host the Game of Stones, another curling podcast. And we kind of we've we've mainly talked we've talked about video games we've talked about beers we've talked about uh, any number of various things but this week we uh, we we talked about curling we talked about how whatever kind of curling season we might be about to have might affect junior curling we talked about uh, some new formats that we'd kind of like to see at various curling tournaments and we. Uh, we, we talked about the, the triples format that's been, that's been going around as a possible format to use during, uh, during this upcoming season of social distancing. Yeah. And I think it's all, we're all just going to have to kind of muddle through this year. Um, we're, so I might be going curling end of August, kind of knock on wood. I don't want to promise much, but the, the rink and the north of England, Preston's planning to open soon. And so we're talking about booking some ice there when it does open. And uh, so that'll be my first attempt at socially distanced curling. So uh, I'll do that. And then we you can interview me after if I survive that experience. Okay. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll probably go, I'll probably go curling sometime in 2022. So is your rink just not reopening or? Uh, I don't think... I don't think we're going to have a season at least until summer of 2021 if if we do it. It yeah. doesn't look like it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not I mean we're pe- people are starting to make plans for this year. I'm and so there's like bond spiel invites going out and stuff. I don't know what's going to happen. Um I figure going up for a practice session late summer where it's not many people and the, the facility itself's already been doing socially distanced stuff with its other activities for a while. So um, it feels as safe as can be for this kind of stuff. Um, so I guess we'll try that. And I think part of what we're going to try to do that for is to figure out how you actually curl um, properly using proper social distancing. Right. So um, it'll be an experiment. I guess we'll all just kind of see how it works this year. Has uh, Scottish curling slash British pr- curling put out any protocols for, for, for back to curling like Canada and the U.S. have? Yeah. So Scottish curling has been putting regular updates up there. There's a lot more kind of public health guidance 
like centralized here, I'd say in the US, like part of it's just that it's a different government structure. But so Public Health England basically says what can and can't reopen. And they've been pretty direct. And so ice rinks will be allowed to open from the 1st of August. And they've got a whole set of guidance and guidelines about about that. And then Scottish curling's written a whole set of rules, pretty similar to the Canadian curling document and the USA curling document, all kind of saying similar things. Masks are mandatory. A lot of talk about kind of minimizing touching, no no swapping stones, um, change facilities closed, basically no socializing after the game. And then a lot of talk about perhaps having an entrance and an exit and kind of directional travel of people through the facility. So so pretty similar, I'd say, to, to the North American documents. Uh, anything out of the ordinary? Uh, not that I've seen. I mean, I, I think it, it's also always changing. Like it's only last week that the government made masks mandatory in stores, and that's going to kick in this Friday. So, um, you know, stuff stuff's changing all the time, I think, with these guidelines. And I, I think it really does depend on the disease, right? If we have a, a second wave, uh, I think all bets are off. I, I think the I'm not sure how it is in the, well, the U.S. is kind of state by state. Here, they're getting very precise with like regional uh, infection rates. And so, uh, so Leicester, I think, you know, Leicester from football, because they, they won the Premier League a few years ago. But Leicester actually had to go back into a lockdown because they had a large spike in cases. Mm-hmm. But Southampton's actually pretty low. We're at five cases, like five new cases per 100,000. So that's, you know, if you're walking around outside, I, I personally feel pretty safe in that kind of a context. It's a pretty low odds. You'd, you'd even encounter somebody who has it. That basically means in for my city's two and a half, 250,000. So that, you know, that means basically 12 people in the city are getting it a day. Um, and, and there's a lot more testing here. So I, I think honestly, the testing matters then like, and basically how areas will open up and, and lock back down depending on if there's surges in cases. But um, curling's not, there's like, I think the website 538 had an interesting graphic I saw today about like, like different kinds of risks. And the point was everyone's just going to have to choose what they're willing to take risks doing. And curling is actually pretty high up the risk chart. If yeah. You kind of think about it, right. It's not, you know, going outside for a run, very low risk activity, shopping, pretty low risk activity. But, you know, to be honest, if we go curling and one person in the rink has COVID boy, I think, yeah. you know, I, th- I think there's a chance you get it. You just have to, you have to operate on the assumption when you're curling that everyone there is a potential carrier and be pretty cautious doing that. And I think Jerry said it best. If everyone's willing to live with say 80% or I'd say maybe even 60% of what we're used to curling and everyone's kind of willing to abide by those rules, maybe it goes, but um, like, I'm not personally planning on doing any bond spiels this year. I think it's just, league play supporting my local club if the championships in england go i'll enter those just kind of it's also like trying to to support the national national events and stuff but um i i'm kind of operating on the assumption that any of them could be canceled and it's just not going to be a normal season yeah and uh i'm not sure we're going to know what what 
what the altered normal will be for another for another few weeks. Um, at least not. In, I don't. I, I think mid August is when they'll they'll have to start making a decision on stuff. And I mean, shoot, college football. You're slowly seeing. Um, you're slowly slowly seeing conferences alter their alter their plans or even cancel. And I think that'll continue. I think they're getting to a point where they've got to they have to just make a, make a call and say we can't do this. College football's tricky. I, you know, I think pro sports, they've kind of found a model, but it's so expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you, you can't put all the <laughs> D1 football teams in a bubble like you're doing with the NBA. Right? That's just not possible. Or like what's happening in NHL. Uh, I think, to be frank, for curling, that kind of came up on our live stream last night. One of the, one of the people in the comment section was asking whether or not curling would go. And I just can't see Canada letting in you know, team Adine or team Hasselberg into Canada, if they're not going to let the blue Jays play. Yeah. Right. I just, I just can't, I can't I, politically, the optics of that are just insane. First of all. And secondly, curling's way down the pecking order and has far less money and resources to justify an exemption. So I don't know. I don't know how some of these events run. Like we're, you know, I'm, I'm doing the, I'm doing the, the events that I normally do. So I am at least put down to go coach the world junior bees this year, depending on how things shake out. But, um, and actually Finland say Finland's had like eight cases or something. So actually if I could, if there's any country I'd like to go to and maybe stay in, if it's not New Zealand, then it's Finland. Right. So get, that's a safe location to go to. But the flip side is, does Finland want to let you know, 30 countries from around the world all bring juniors in and potentially, um, you know, spread the disease around. I think th- 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 there are also kind of these WCF events have the potential to be spreader events too. So there's got to be some thought about um, how they'll be run safely. Um, and when I've somewhat joked about it on a previous podcast, but if you were ever going to create a curling bubble and just bring in teams and run your championship. I mean, there's no better place than Kisikalio, Finland. Yeah, no, it's a, if you're there, it's fine. I think that uh, there hasn't really been guidance yet about testing. Like I, I think, and testing's getting easier. So um, there's nothing to say that they couldn't uh, have people test when they arrive in Finland and quarantine for a bit. And then, I think, you know, I don't, the seven day thing's a bit probably extreme for the, the NBA, but which is what they're doing there. But you could probably do have people test two, three times before they arrive on site and kind of have testing available on site. And that might make it safe. And then once everyone's in that bubble, it's, it's pretty safe from, from a spreading risk also. Well, let's go back and talk about, uh, you know, we, we started talking about curling there in Scotland, and we have a couple interviews for people today, including one uh, regarding possibly getting a new curling center for the Glasgow area. And Glasgow is important for curling in Scotland, I think, because it's the largest city in Scotland. It's your biggest population center and right now, Jonathan, isn't isn't Glasgow with just without curling? Uh, Glasgow City itself is, although as Alan kind of points out right away in the interview, they kind of always, not always, but have been for quite a while. Um, we, we talk a little bit about the history of it at the start of the interview. 
the the facility that kind of triggered all this is there was a facility at a mall called Into Brehead, which is just on the edge, just outside Glasgow in like the first first tier suburb called Renfrew. Um, they'd had a lease there for about 20 years. It's an eight sheet club. Um, a lot of big events have been played there over the years, including um, there was a kind of top top tier uh, women's WCT event there for quite a while. And there's a top tier junior event and plus like regular bond spiels and lots of club, club play, like about eight, eight, 900 curlers um, kind of regularly played there. And the lease expired with the mall um, last year. And then it turned out that because of COVID, the, the entire company that hold that owns the mall uh, has gone into administration, gone into bankruptcy. So that facility has gone. Um, so we reached out to Alan Hanna, who's the head of the Glasgow Ice Sports Committee, and they're trying to kind of talk to him a little bit about uh, their plans and um, also kind of get a sense of what, what you know, what's going on there to, to get, develop a new kind of curling-focused facility in Glasgow. All right, so I'm now joined by Alan Hanna from Glasgow Ice Centre. Uh, and we're going to talk today about an interesting development up in kind of Scottish curling with respect to building a new ice rink there. And so, Alan, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me uh, having me along. I really uh, looking forward to sharing uh, some of the, the the good work that we're we're doing in Glasgow to to hopefully find us a new home for for ice sports in the in the not, in the not too short uh, distant future. So. Right. So yeah. So I think the first the first place to start is probably like most of our listeners are in North America, and I think the first thing they'd be surprised to learn is at the moment there really isn't um, a curling ice rink in Scotland's largest city. There's a few kind of around in the suburbs or neighboring neighboring towns, but there's there's no longer one in um, Glasgow proper. So. I was wondering if we could kind of start with like a little bit of history of kind of curling rinks in the area. I'm not sure how, how knowledgeable you are about that, but the last facility that was there was Brayhead. And so what, what was the history of the Brayhead facility? Um, the, the, the Brayhead facility, believe it or not, actually didn't even sit within the, the Glasgow city boundary, but ultimately it served the, 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 Glasgow, uh, the Glasgow curling community. It's been, uh, it was established there 20 years ago, um, plus probably when the, the shopping centre was created uh, at Brayhead, just on the outskirts of Renfrew. So that sort of sits between the the airport and uh, Glasgow city centre. And as part of the the, the, the shopping centre development, there was a, a planning condition uh, requirement for there to be an element of leisure uh, and sporting leisure provided on the site. And uh, one way of providing this was to provide uh, a, a curling rink and uh, the curling rink satisfied that planning condition. Um, an eight-sheeter dedicated curling facility was was provided within the uh, with it within the shopping centre, and you know was the home for you know nearly nine hundred members uh, at its peak. Um, more laterally, it probably fell away down to about the the seven hundred. Um, the, the curling rink was very separate to the, 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 the ice hockey arena, which was where or where Glasgow clan, quite a, a prominent uh, ice hockey franchise in the UK, uh, play out of. Um, we've been fortunate at Brayhead to have uh, hosted uh, you know, the World Men's in 2000, I think, the World Juniors. Um, we've had European Championships uh, 
in the arena. So you know, curling has been uh, is, is, had found its its home at Brayhead uh, to serve Glasgow for, for you know for for certainly for the last twenty years. So just like maybe, do you know much about the history pre pre Brayhead? Were, were there curling rinks in the city before that, or is is curling more kind of tied to the rural rural parts of Scotland rather than the big cities? There absolutely were. I mean, Cross Maloof, which was the old Scotland ice rink, is a very well known name within sort of Glasgow uh, ice sports um, uh, 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 circles, and it it, it hosted um, curling and also um, skating. Uh, within that, it closed many, many years ago. And off the back of that, there was a, a facility built that, that was called the Summit Centre that was quite near quite quite near the city centre. Uh, it closed uh, and it ultimately was the springboard to, you know, to find as a new home in Glasgow. And that's why we probably ended up at, uh, at Brayhead. And so, so I'm not quite clear on the timeline of this because a lot of things have happened quite quickly with with lockdown. But did the Into itself, the company that owns Brayhead Shopping Centre, has gone into administration. Is that correct? We have. That's just recently in the last two or three weeks. But it wasn't uh, it, as much as that was probably a wee bit of the writing on the wall for us. Um, we we got given notice back in November. That the curling facility, the dedicated curling facility at Brayhead, would be closing at the end of the season just passed. So, mm-hmm. um, so the doors would be closing sort of March, uh, March time. Um, so to be fair to Tianchu, you know, they, they they did give us a you know a four four five month uh, window of, of notice. But as you'll appreciate, uh, if our you know if our, our vision is uh, is certainly to to build something new uh, or, or find another site. Um, we're probably never ever going to achieve that within the timescales. So at least it gave um, you know the, the the current 700 members that that we have the opportunity to go out and look at other options, what was available in some of those you know uh, other dedicated curling facilities, as you say, on the outskirts of Glasgow, and those are places like the Greenacres that people may well know. You know, it's uh, got Richard Harding as the as the owner there, that's probably very well known in, in, in curling circles. Um, we also have a facility at Hamilton, which is to the opposite end of the city. East Kilbride, it's another shopping centre type facility. So, so it, at least the, the the members were 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 given some time um, to 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 go and look, you know, go and look at what other options were available. And so, what are the plans now? Because you're part of this new organisation, like the Glasgow Ice Centre. Uh, group and so, what are the plans now for this group? Um, how are you going to bring curling kind of back into Glasgow, Glasgow Centre, if you will? Well, well, off the the back of the the announcement by Inchu in November that the, the curling facility would would close, um, a, a group of the curlers took up took up the you know the baton with this, and we we started to investigate what you know what options were were ultimately out there for us. Um, we, we we started to you know to look at curling only uh, as a first option, uh, and also with there being absolutely no other ice facility in Glasgow, we, we we felt there was probably an opportunity for us to to start to factor into our thinking um, ice skating and even ice hockey. I have to say, you know, there's a a decent market of uh, of junior ice hockey clubs within the the, the Glasgow catchment area. Um, so the first uh, the first part of that analysis um, probably steered us away from uh, an absolute dedicated curling facility. 
because ultimately if we were going to have to privately finance that um we 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 the numbers just didn't really add up in terms of it being a financial model and that was based on a, a on a six sheet uh, type facility so uh, and also based on the the current use that Glasgow curlers use uh, you know use the use the ice at Greyhead so so we saw that a combination or a multi sport uh, option was was probably the way ahead for us and 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 that ultimately is is where we're heading um so Glasgow Ice Centre was created um with the purpose of setting up a charity or a vehicle to to start looking at the delivery of that and also uh, uh, the the organization that would take forward uh, a feasibility study that we ultimately needed to 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 have delivered and market tested and and really sort of drill into what what options were were viable for us where could we possibly you know find the funding to ultimately deliver it so so a lot of work behind the scenes of looking at options setting up Glasgow Ice Centre um, establishing the charity and ultimately progressing with the feasibility study has has really been our main work in in the last sort of six months or thereby. So I think one thing that a lot of our North American listeners might be surprised at is that in Scotland, it's actually fairly common for ice rinks to be shared between skating and curling, but it's a slightly different model than the North American arena model. So even even Brayhead was, if I'm correct, right? That you'd have a couple of times set aside for skating and then other times set aside for curling and they'd redo the ice in between. Is that is that correct? Um, well, at Brayhead, we actually had a dedicated eight-sheet and curl, sheet, um, curling facility. So, so that was... That that was brilliant for you know for us curlers in terms of maintaining maintaining conditions and good good curling conditions. So so we're really quite fortunate with that. Um, you, you're absolutely right. There the you know there are a lot of other venues out there who who do use the pad for for skating, some for junior hockey, uh, and some for curling. And uh, you know the the challenge around that is. Is about the turnaround and uh, the turnaround time, uh, and ultimately the quality that, that that's delivered, particularly for curling, because we know that there's a you know there's a specialist art and you know in preparing us uh, you know excellent conditions that we that we enjoy playing on. So, so, so like the the question I'm leading on to then is in parting partnering with the skating community is the idea then to have separate pads for ice skating and for curling or would it be a shared pad and kind of work out a a model of kind of accommodation between the two groups? Well, we're going to look at both options, and again, it will come down to finance. So the you know the the first option will be that single pad, and um, and it may be the situation where. You know the curlers are in there from Monday to sort of Friday lunchtime, and then the the skating community take over on the weekends, which is probably more when we're when we're more likely to attract certainly that public skating uh, type income and revenue. So that that's definitely one option. Uh, the the second option, which you know without preempting what the feasibility study says, I have to say is probably my preferred option, but it, it's going to cost us a bit more will be the two pad option and uh, you know that that'll that'll allow us to to deliver a, a you know a dedicated um, sort of curling facility whether that's a you know a four or a six sheeter and then a, a separate pad looking at one of those 60 by 30 uh, you know hockey type pads which is going to really open up a, a whole new customer base for us 
in terms of junior ice hockey, figure skating, uh, and also ultimately the public skating sessions as well. We we see that that you know that 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 uh, sixty by thirty pad possibly having a you know a, a small seating capacity of you know fifteen hundred two thousand where we can start to host maybe some of our national curling championships maybe maybe even a European championships maybe um, some um, figure skating national championships so so I think the, the the option to have some seating and some viewing facilities in there will just only help with the with the financial modeling so so I think the answer is we're going to look at both options uh, and my preferred option would be the two pad option do you, do you have a sense of how many she, sheets you're thinking of for the curling side of it? Would it be to try to get the full eight back, or is that just uh, like too far down the road right now? Um, we, we, we're probably thinking not eight. It's probably more likely to be six. Um, we, we see that as probably being the uh, the, the best uh, route for us, giving, given the, the data that we've got on current usage, um, we, we, we would probably see six as being the best. If we're only building four sheets in isolation, um, probably not viable, um, and uh, it needs to be six. So, so yeah, I think I'm talking myself into this, Jonathan. I think it's going to be six. Okay, so. I, I think six, six is a good number. I think six, <laughs> for, as a player, I think that's always a good number. Good for bond spiels. I Indeed. Think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Good for competitions. Um, so what's the timeline? Do you have do you have a like a, a time when you like to to open? Is this like a kind of multi year project? I assume. So. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's it's always the challenge because a lot of these curlers have you know Brayhead members have have gone and uh, made other arrangements at the other venues that I mentioned earlier, and uh, you know ultimately some of those those individuals will just decide to stay in those venues, and uh, you know, and uh, and will probably have a you know, a challenge in terms of them, you know, attracting them back to a new venue. So, so there's a bit of a twofold attack. We see there's a, a new market out there for curling. I think uh, in a good location, we can we can tap into you know some some other areas. Um, and uh, yeah, so timeline September 2022 is the absolute uh, earliest. I think that we probably could deliver something. We would we would love to be open for that twenty two twenty three season. I think that 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 would be our would be our absolute goal. Um, it's as you'll appreciate, Jonathan. It's very heavily dependent on can we raise the money. Um, we've got planning consents and applications and things to 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 go through. Um, probably lots of you know lots of lots of hoops that we need to jump through to to ultimately deliver that. But um, we we need to set ourselves a target and. Uh, September 2022 would be would be great. So, so you just mentioned this. You're worried a little bit about losing some of the members from the Brayhead um, Center off to other facilities. Do you think that? Uh, what do you think some of the advantages of putting a curling rink in kind of Glasgow Center is, both for kind of attracting new curlers and also getting um, getting perhaps some of the more competitive curlers back into the kind of competing locally, if you will. Yeah, I think I think it's quite location sensitive. Um, I mean, as you know, Glasgow has a you know a huge student population. I think there's you know there's there's some there's certainly some uh, some work that we can that we can do in trying to bring on board students and uh, and ultimately the the biggest challenge and I'm sure we have the same issues in North America too is about uh, that the challenges in are around retaining members. You know, once they get once once 
once they get to young adult stage and they get to that stage in their life where they're probably you know in career mode and uh, you know and uh, and looking to buy houses and all those other expensive things that come with that stage of the life that uh, we we lose them from curling and I think we, we we really need to look closely about how we how we keep that that age you know that age group uh, in their twenties and their thirties and probably their forties uh, engaged uh, engaged in curling so so student market um we we see there's a you know an opportunity in a right location in glasgow to to get into the corporate market uh and then there's the biggest market i think that that that's that's in curling all over is that is the is the 50 plus uh and and we mustn't lose sight of that because i think we we promote ourselves as a sport of being open accessible and inclusive inclusive between the ages of 8 and 80 and uh, and you know we 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 need to we need to make sure that we're, we're we're getting you know the right message out there to to the fifty plus group that this is a sport that they can really get engaged with they can enjoy and they can they can they can feel really part of it uh, up until you know whatever age they they, they feel they they no they no longer want to continue so. So what can uh, people do if they want to help so our listeners, but also the curling community in Glasgow? What, what are you looking for uh, at the moment in, in order to get this project going? Uh, ultimately funds. So anybody wants to give us the nation, absolutely. So, uh, you know, that, that'd be more than welcomed. At this stage, we're, we're you know, we're, we're, we're raising some, some initial funds that cover sort of early, uh, early stages of project costs, and that covers bits of the feasibility study and uh, and some other costs that we that, that we require um I, I think i think the key thing for us is just to is just to champion the project um we're, we're fortunate to have you know eve muirhead uh, as one of our ambassadors along with ross patterson and also uh, aileen nielsen uh, so so those are three very well known curlers within you know within scotland and gb circles and uh you know they're they're championing our cause, so uh, so yeah, it's just about um, you know supporting is about sharing the message, sharing the good news message that uh, you know Glasgow Glasgow really deserves a a, a vi- viable and uh, sustainable ice facility, and we're we're just uh, you know we're just delighted to actually in the with the downside of uh, losing Bray Head. We actually see this as a real good opportunity for ice sports in Glasgow, and uh, I think we need to just take that positive intent uh, and share that in every circle that we can, whether that's in political circles, funding circles, uh, or whatever. So, so um, are there ways that people can follow you through social media or a website, or how how would they get in touch mm-hmm. with you if they wanted to to support the project? Yeah, I mean. Uh, Facebook is is probably our most prominent one. We we just hit over a, a, a thousand likes on our page just at the weekend, which is absolutely astounding considering we just uh, set that up probably less than a month ago. So so we're on on Facebook and it's Glasgow Ice Centre. Um, we we're also on Twitter. We're also on LinkedIn. And just today, I think we have just uh, gone on to Instagram. So. So you'll find us Glasgow Ice Centre on, on on any of those channels. Um, we also have a, a dedicated email address for for anybody who has any questions or, or or any interest in the project. Please just drop us a note. Uh, that would be really appreciated. And that email address is Glasgow Ice Centre, uh, all lowercase and all all one word. So it's Glasgow Ice Centre at gmail 
com. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Um, is there anything else you want to add? No, I'm just delighted to, to for you to have us on board and for me to you know to share some of the the great work that the team are currently doing, and um, we are we are we are determined and excited about you know what 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 future uh, lies ahead of us. It's going to take us a bit of time. There's going to be some hurdles as as these projects uh, are not easy, but ultimately we're we're absolutely determined. Uh, Scotland's largest city, as you say. It's got a population, a circulation of 1.2 million. It would be a crying shame not to have a, you know, a, a dedicated ice facility in Glasgow. So, so we're going to do all that we can to, to, to make sure that doesn't happen. All right. Well, good luck with the project, and we'll be following along. And uh, hopefully, we'll have uh, I'll be up there for a bond spiel in the autumn of 2022. Great. Okay. Look forward to that. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks a lot. Cheers. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much for talking to Alan. And we're going to go from talking about the importance of having curling in the largest city in Scotland, which is, of course, a curling hotbed. Um, and uh, in a city that's about the size of Tulsa, Oklahoma, to the potential of getting a dedicated curling facility in the second largest city in the U.S. Um, and so tell us a little bit about the Southern California Curling Center. So this is interesting too, and I, I learned a lot from this interview. Um, I, what's interesting is the, the California group has decided to take a model that's quite common in Scotland. And so by that, I mean in Scotland, most of the curling rinks are owned by some kind of entity, either an individual, a private company, or... Um, a municipality, some kind of council, like the council government. So in North America, especially Canada, the default model is member-owned curling rink, by which I mean you join the curling rink and that's your, you buy a membership in the rink and that then gives you some kind of stake in the club and the club as an entity owns the rink. Um, and so, you know, as we know from experience, moving from um, a club that rents arena ice to a club owning a dedicated facility is quite a big challenge. It's quite capital intensive. And so it turns out the Southern California curling center grows out of the Hollywood curling club, but they've actually kind of formed a, a private partnership and are kind of collecting investors. And those investors will finance the building of a facility. And then the Hollywood curling club will rent the ice from that facility in order to um, kind of run the league play, but the California Curling Center will then also operate on a for-profit basis doing other other activities. So uh, I've, I, again, I learned a lot from this interview too, just as I did with Alan about kind of different models, I guess, if you will, about how curling clubs can be set up. And it's interesting to see some, um, all these projects going on right now in the middle of the pandemic to, to launch new curling facilities in big metropolitan areas. Let's start by saying that I'm joined now by uh, Liza Barris and Matt Gamboa, and they're two of the founding partners for the Southern uh, California Curling Center. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for having Hi, much. thanks. Yeah, and so we wanted to get you on today because um, you're part of a group that's going to bring dedicated curling ice to LA. And so obviously Los Angeles is not thought of as a curling mecca, but it is the second largest city in the US. So... We're wondering, first of all, how long has curling been in Los Angeles and how did the two of you get into curling? 
Uh, well, I think, um, you know, we talk about cur modern curling, Hollywood curling has been in uh, LA since 2000, the end of 2007. So we've been curling for almost 13 years here. But if you go back further, there was an old LA curling club in the 60s and 70s, even curling out into the 80s. In fact, um, USA Curling's Tom Violette, he actually curled for the Los Angeles Curling Club in uh, some national championships in the 80s. So there's some history back before even our club, which is kind of exciting. And even for your other ice sport fans, uh, the Zamboni was invented in Southern California. So even though it's not a, a ice sport hotbed, um, there's a lot of ice history here too. Oh, wow. Sure. I didn't know that about the Zamboni. <laughs> and Liza, how did yeah. you get into curling then? Um, I found Hollywood curling uh, within the first year that it was open. Um, you know, it, it started at the end of 2007 and I am an expat Canadian and had been living in the U.S. for a couple of years at that point. And some Canadian friends of mine heard about it from a Canadians living abroad meetup group that we're going to get together and go to an event. And we couldn't go with the meetup group, but we looked up Hollywood Curling, found the website, decided to sign up for a Learn to Curl. And the funny thing is, the first time I tried it, I was really lukewarm about the sport. I was sort of thought, eh, it was fun, I guess. <laughs> um, but I was, my husband and, and some friends of ours, they were completely gung-ho and down for uh, signing up for a league. And so they roped me into it. And I was, uh, you know, not super excited about the sport until I played in my first spawn spiel. And that was what really hooked me. And now the funny thing is, is like I've, you know, made curling this massive part of my life for the last, you know, seven, eight years. And those friends that dragged me out to the Learn to Curl haven't been on the ice once in that time. So, <laughs> oh, wow. um, yeah, you know, I tend to uh, be one of those people that when I, when I really love something, I go all out and curling became that for me. And I became a board member of Hollywood Curling um, back in 2000, I believe it was 2012. And um, that's when Matt and I started working really close together and, and talking about, okay, how do we get a dedicated space for this sport here in Los Angeles? How do we, how do we build a permanent home for Hollywood Curling so that we don't have to share the ice with hockey and figure skating, which is really popular in Southern California. So trying to compete for that coveted ice time at the limited uh, facilities we have was, you know, really, really challenging to grow the sport. So just a little bit about Hollywood curling. So is that, is that the only club in the LA area then? There's um, in the, the LA, depends on how you define LA again, going to that back to that pedantic city planner um, mindset. Uh, we also have orange County curling who curls down in orange County and, um, and they used to be in a city called Westminster that was closer to us, but they moved further down to Irvine. So now we got some big, bigger geography between the two like physical locations of where curling happens. But generally, we are the two clubs that exist um, in Southern California. Okay, and so so how big's the membership for Hollywood Curling? Last I checked, 
they were at about 150 members right before COVID happened. Um, obviously, you know, this year has put a wrench in the work. So uh, everyone's waiting for the dedicated ice to open up and we expect those numbers to go up once, you know, once we have a place to put them all. And so, uh, so the facility is a little bit different from the club, right? So the Southern California Curling Center is a different entity than Hollywood Curling? Exactly. I think uh, when we started going down this path of looking for dedicated ice and you know, we, lo- we looked at all- what everyone else was doing. I was at all the members' assemblies. I saw what, what Denver did and what the Dakota did and Arizona, seeing what everyone came across. And it's so it varied so much. It's, it's, um, you know, all these unique circumstances and we really zeroed down on what it takes to do it here. Uh, it was just, you know, it's a million dollar proposal. It's a really intensive, you know, kind of facility, like the, the real estate market's kind of out of control. And so it's, um, it was just like, how do you do this? And then thinking about how do you do that with a volunteer board and the kind of burnout and all that sort of stuff, uh, it, it became, a kind of a tough prospect. And then when we had this opportunity to unlink the club from the the facility, it seemed like a real win-win to allow membership to do membership stuff, to run the club, to do juniors, to do things like that. Whereas the facility becomes its own beast that then uh, you look at it on a day-to-day basis, you have people running that on a day-to-day basis to make that work. So I think we kind of we're able to find that solution that worked, hopefully will work best for, <laughs> for everyone to happen here in, in, in this kind of, you know, market, which is very different than like Cincinnati's has to deal with. Yeah. So to further expand on that, just to explain Southern California Curling Center will be the physical building and everything that it takes to make the ice and get things running. That That's, you know, the organization that Matt and I have Uh, founded with our business partner, Peter Dome. Um, And it was Peter who approached us back in 2018, coming hot off of the Olympics and, you know, had he's he's former aerospace, uh, former SpaceX engineer and, you know, came to the table and said, you know, I want to see this happen. I'm passionate about the sport. Um, I, I see what you guys are trying to do with Hollywood curling. And we really talked about all of the different models that we thought it would take and decided to pursue this. Um, and in that process, we wanted to make sure that Hollywood curling had a place there. So Hollywood curling is like our main business partner, our main, um, our, our main connection in there. Uh, Hollywood curling will essentially manage and run the member led events. And the facility will be sort of more public facing for things like private parties, learn to curl, those kinds of things will fall more under the facility. And we look at, at, you know, facilities that do something similar and try to come up with a model that we thought would uh, best serve our community, best serve Hollywood curling so that Hollywood curling can really focus on doing the community-led events of growing the sport, of encouraging people to compete at a higher level, of 
you know, sponsoring youth curling so that we can get kids involved at a younger level and let them really focus on the things that the nonprofit should work on and be concerned about while the business entity that manages the facility worries about the day-to-day -day operations, insurance, um, you know, maintenance on things, uh, you know, all of the, uh, all of the nitty gritty stuff that you don't want to entrust necessarily to a volunteer board of directors, because that's asking a lot to make sure that a facility of this size and this, um, you know, this much uh, uh, overhead, you know, it's, it's a lot to ask volunteers to, to manage on a day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year basis. Plus, I think also the nature of our membership, uh, we didn't have really a lot of those like long time, you know, moneyed kind of members who can help push things through or, you know, there's the transient nature of LA in a lot of ways where people move to a different part of the city and, and all of a sudden curling's not easy for them to get to anymore or they move away for jobs or they move away for whatever. So I think we, there was not necessarily a lot of turnover, but you know, we, one or two key people go away and it could, it could throw things in disarray when we're dealing with this level of like commitment to this building. So um, it really kind of uh, took a, some of the burden off of uh, the club to, to do this type of model. So how far along are you with the facility itself? Have you, are you, are you going to be building a facility from the ground up? Will it be a, like a, a lease that you convert uh, or have you figured that part of the project out yet? It's exciting. As of mid-July, and I don't know when you guys are going to air this podcast, but as of mid-July, um, we have a lease. We have submitted plans to the city. We have a location in the city of Vernon, which is about 10 minutes away from downtown Los Angeles. And we are just in the process of getting those final construction drawings approved by the city so that we have our construction permit. Uh, and once we have that, our contractors are ready to go. So we're talking about ice, you know, within, I mean, COVID-19 throws a wrench in everything. So we have been really hesitant to promise any date, but you know, we're, we're definitely talking about ice by the end of this year, probably a mid to late fall kind of uh, time frame. And so, so then it's a facility you've rented and you're going to be converting it. And so it's, it sounds like you're probably able to do the conversion fairly quickly then. Yes, it has a, it's, it's powered to our needs. Um, it's a big flat open warehouse. Uh, we're using the ISS um, technology to the, the ice grid technology to, to lay the ground, to lay the, the ice sheets, the ice pads. And uh, we'll have six sheets of ice in this, um, in this warehouse. So we'll be pretty, in fact, I think that might make it the, the most sheets in a club like west of Bismarck. Yeah. Okay. So six is good. Will there also be like, what, what will the warm room facilities be like? Right now, the plans have uh, end viewing um, as a typical club, which will be nice. Um, but we're also, the way it's laid out is we're going to have a substantial um, warm room on the side uh, that will be, uh, you'll have some visibility through glass, but then it'll primarily be driven by like video monitors, but just a big wide open space that can be um, um, multi-purpose for potentially different events or different needs and in, in, in Pre-COVID times, we would 
think about the big, you know, Bondsville banquet being hosted inside there um, for all, you know, 130 players um, for a 32 team spiel, but post COVID time, we're kind of thinking <laughs> what that, what that looks like still. But, <laughs> but the nice thing is that space is going to mean that we hopefully can do, can be in the space without feeling cramped, feel airy, you have a big roll up door, we can open up and, and have some fresh air and hopefully have some semblance of broom stacking in the near term, um, whatever we can do safely. But obviously a lot of uh, dining um, and bar places are opening up to uh, outdoor spaces that seems to be uh, manageable uh, through the health department, through the, all the available science so far. So if that is a thing that still manages to be um, available to us, then I think we have a good chance of, especially with our weather, to continue some of that socializing in the short term while we're still dealing with, you know, the risks um, with the virus. So that it's, it's all, you know, we're all just taking it kind of day by day. And the very, the, our main thing is to make sure we have curling um, on the ice and then, uh, and then we're hopefully figure out a plan for everything else. Um, the extracurriculars. Yeah, people who are, are interested can definitely check out, right at the very beginning of COVID, we did a walkthrough tour of the space right after we signed our lease. Um, and we did it, we posted it to our website and to our YouTube channel. And so if people are curious to see um, a little bit of what we talked about in that tour, you know, was preliminary and, you know, things have shifted a little bit now that we've got our plans done. But the general, uh, the general, the, the general, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Spirit, the general spirit of that video still stands in terms of allowing people to see what the inside of this big giant warehouse looks like. And it's, it's not a far stretch to imagine six sheets of ice in there. Yeah, no, that's going to be fantastic. So um, I think the first I saw of the project was the WCF had a story maybe back in April or May. And uh, John Schuster and Tyler George were kind of in the story mm -hmm. uh, promoting the promoting the facility. So I'm wondering, like, ha have they been involved at all in helping promote it or what kind of activities have they been doing with your group? John, both of them, but John in particular has been a very long time friend of ours. We met him back in... Um, it would have been in, in between 2000 and 2009, 2010. He came out to do a, an appearance uh, on Jay Leno before the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver. And while he was out, he came and, and joined us for a public learn to curl that we were teaching. And we all went out for beer afterwards. And we've been longtime friends with John. We sponsored him um, we sponsored his team uh, the year that, you know, USA Curling famously decided not to allow them into the high performance program. Um, and, you know, we, we have stayed very close contact with him. Tyler George came out and was the first celebrity skip to play in our, our very first uh, celebrity charity event that we um, added to our bond field back in I believe it was 2013. Well, it, it was actually, uh, it wasn't even the charity event that year because it was just the rent-a-ringer. So he just came out as a rent-a-ringer. And I think it was the <laughs> next year that we had the full-on charity. Is that right? Or was it that year? We no, no, no. It was the same thing because he came out and he stayed on my couch and we we taught Will Wheaton and Mackenzie oh, Aston right. 
had a curl uh, late at night. We got the ice at like 11 o'clock at night. And my first time meeting Tyler George, he and I taught Will Wheaton how to curl and then uh, drank scotch and got to know each other in my apartment with my (laughs) husband. So, um, yeah. So, you know, these guys have been, these guys have been part of the Hollywood curling family for years. And, you know, we have traveled around the world with them. We have gone to see them. Um, you know, both Matt and I were at the um, the Olympic uh, trials in Fargo back in, when was that? 20, 2013. Uh, 2013, that's right. And, um, you know, we, we they, they, they have long supported this program. And, you know, if you read that article, the one that you're talking about, uh, that Jolene Latimer interviewed them for, they talk about just the spirit of curling in California is what really caught their attention. And, you know, it was just, it was different. It was, I think what they've always said is that people out here don't take curling for granted because it doesn't come easy. You know, we have to do a lot more uh, to make curling happen out here. And people out here are really passionate about it. And so they have always been huge supporters of the project and wanted to get involved in any way that they could, whether that's to promote us, whether that's to advise us, whether, you know, in, in any way, shape or form. And they both promised to be here when we open our doors. So we're going to, we're going to take them up on that. And while we're sharing Tyler George stories, I just want to <laughs> shout out to when I met him in 2010 in Green Bay Summerspill and played against him and Steph LeDrew and some folks from Bowling Green. And that's where I was introduced to Jepson's Malort, AKA the judge. Um, (laughs) Been a romance ever since. Uh, I want to go back and like unpack two things. So so Liza mentioned, first of all, Will Wheaton. So Mm -hmm. I guess of of Wesley Crusher fame and from Star Trek, if you're kind of a next generation, if you're my age, but if you're a bit younger, I guess is uh, Sheldon's nemesis on the Big Bang Theory. That's right. uh, so, so um, I think one of the things that's interesting is because you're based in Hollywood, you probably do have a lot more access to um, Hollywood celebrities than if you're, say, in Kent, England, or uh, Richmond, Virginia. So, yes, I um, would say that is true. <laughs> so, have a lot. So, I saw there's for a while it seemed like Will Wheaton was involved in curling, but more generally, have there have the celebrities kind of been involved in the club since its founding? Not since it's founding. Well, you know, a little bit. Yeah, actually, because when we very one of the very first leagues we were doing at our original location, when the you know early on is we had some writers and one of the actors from House that played in a, a league. Um, they were low key. They were you know good good sportsmanship and everything, but they weren't like super involved. Um, you know, it's hard to to manage that line between like, Oh, how do we use you to, to grow this versus just come and have fun. So we've kind of like, you know, we never really pushed folks when they joined us. We just like, Hey, just come play. Well, you're going to, you're going to play with us. And so while we've recruited people for our celebrity matches, we've also had like randomly celebrities show up like, um, you know, famously at our bond spill, we did a learner curl and Matthew Perry showed up that day to, to take a class and the guy teaching him had no idea who he was. So it was kind of hilarious. <laughs> and then, um, and then more recently, um, Aubrey Plaza, uh, joined the league and played in, uh, um, some matches and went on Ellen talking about how she's a curler now, which was pretty wild. Um, 
And then uh, from our celebrity match, uh, Kimmy Robertson from Twin Peaks, she's a member and she plays in leagues and she's super chill. So uh, we get a little bit of, uh, you know, the folks who we pull in because we're trying to do this celebrity match versus they come to us organically and they kind of dig it. And because of our poor ice times, they can't always maybe stay involved or stay involved at the level they want to. Okay. So then the other thing I picked up from Liza was that you have, you have a couple of fundraising techniques that sound pretty clever. So one's <laughs> rent a ringer, which I imagine is a fundraiser for the club. And then I guess if you have celebrities too, is there a way that you kind of leverage the celebrities as a fundraiser in terms of their participation in events? Yeah. So typically this has always been in conjunction with our annual bond spiel and the summer blockbuster bond spiel, um, uh, most of its history uh, found itself right around the 4th of July. It, it, prior to that, it was around the May long weekend, but then we shifted to the 4th of July. And every year we wanted to grow the event, grow the event. And we had talked for several years about doing a celebrity game, how much fun that would be. And I believe it was 2012 or 13, I can't remember, <laughs> one of those years was the first year we actually managed to pull it off. And um, the way that we did it was we invited some Hollywood celebrities and some curling quote unquote celebrities to come out and auctioned off spots on those teams for an exhibition style game. So for example, the first year that we did it, Will Wheaton and uh, Tyler George, no, Will Wheaton and um, Travis Way played against uh, Tyler George and Christy Swanson, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And we had several other sheets of celebrities playing at the same time. And then uh, the following year, we sort of built on that. And so every year it became this, this, this added bonus to our bond field that you could either bid on a spot on one of these teams or you could put your name in a raffle and hope to get your name drawn to play in the celebrity game. And it, it sort of replaced our, we, our DJ or our, uh, you know, band or entertainment was instead we did this exhibition style game and it kind of grew from there. And then Matt came up with a brilliant idea of rent a ringer that same year. I'll let Matt fill you in on, on that one. Yeah. The premise is just, you know, bid on, on, uh, pro curler to play on your team for the weekend and you get to hang out with them and um uh you know have someone good on your team and i i don't know that it was a totally original i, th- I feel like i've seen some clubs do that with debbie mccormick in the past maybe like out and out east but um definitely uh the name was just like boom it's an easy name for it um incidentally enough the very first rentering or tyler george they play the very first draw uh, of that bond spiel, 8 a.m., and they scored an 8-ender. Um, so <laughs> the very first 8-ender in Hollywood curling history, um, the rent ringer team got it, and it was just kind of a, a, a perfect scenario for that time. So it was really fun. Yeah, they said it was worth every penny that they paid for Tyler just in that one game. Oh, I'm sure we're getting an 8 I've never scored an 8-ender, so. No, nor have I. Yeah. How how important do you think it is to have um, a dedicated ice facility in the second largest market in the U.S.? I think it's huge, uh, both in terms of uh, the local market and how do you how do you grow and continue to guarantee that the sport can uh, 
that the sport can can survive the cutthroat um, nature of how competitive it is to get ice time here. Um, you know, we recognized many years ago that it was it, we sort of hit this we hit this place where it was extremely hard to grow the membership beyond what we had without getting better and more available ice. And the ice just wasn't available to us. And hockey ice is notoriously difficult to work on, even if you have a great rink. And we had good relationships with, um, with several of our locations that we were at when we moved to Valencia full time and ice station Valencia, we had a great relationship with them. It was a great facility, but it was still, you know, it was still hockey ice that you had about 20 minutes to turn from hockey to curling ice. And, you know, and some weeks it was really unplayable. Um, some weeks you had really bad falls and heaving in a corner and, you know, the compressor might go out. And so you might have a really frosty night one night or you might have whatever it was. Um, and what we discovered was that it was really hard for people to want to continue much more than a couple of years in casual league play. And they would, we were noticing teams spending a lot of money traveling, us included, uh, traveling out of state to go to, you know, dedicated facilities and bond fields and play downs. And a lot of people would drop out of the sport after a few years when they realized that they could keep playing Sunday night leagues and never get any better uh, because the ice did not behave the way that curling ice was supposed to. And so definitely in that respect for the growth of a club, um, I think in any market, if you are in a market that does not have dedicated ice, you know, the ultimate goal is trying to get your hands on somewhere that you can build a dedicated facility because without it, you know, you can expect your membership numbers to plateau. You can expect even your most dedicated curlers to get frustrated and drop off when the conditions aren't great. On the broader level, because I think you, you kind of touched on two different levels, one as our club and maybe one as the, uh, the bigger, you know, curling in the country as a whole. And I think um, our, ability to to reach you know up to 18 million people just in this location is is that in itself is pretty huge but also because we have so much concentrated media we have the possibility to expand that reach especially in media narratives and so we've already had examples of where as the club we've been able to do um some shoots for for bigger and smaller um productions, including uh, You're the Worst. They did like a whole episode out of big curling sequence in it. Um, we, there's a fake trailer for this film called Black Ice uh, a couple years ago. That was pretty fun. Um, there's the LMFAO video from 2010 that you might have seen, um, you know, where uh, the office borrowed uh, rented stones from us, the stone for Jay Leno, Ellen DeGeneres. We get calls every like, you know, year two like hey we need some curling brooms for a shoot or whatever and so uh this ability to do um uh to kind of satisfy a media itch for a show or a movie that wants to incorporate a curling scene um is gonna be massive even that there's a a, a minivan commercial a couple years ago where one of the jokes was the kids taking up all these sports and there's a curling stone in it 
that was one of our curling stones. So I think um, that ability to get more production that involves curling is going to be an extra boon for hopefully everybody. Uh, so that's what's kind of exciting about being in our location at this kind of time too. Yeah. And then I'll throw in, you know, in terms of the sport in general, the U.S. is seeing such, um, or at least pre-COVID, <laughs> seeing <laughs> such a, you know, massive boom in interest. Um, thank you, 2018 Olympics. Thank you, gold medal. That, that had a big thing to do with it. But we have seen that growth coming well before those Olympics. We had seen this interest growing we had seen this um, a massive uptick in the number of, of um, corporate parties we were being asked to do um, and continue to be asked to do and so uh, you know in general the states is seeing a huge uh, uh, expansion of the sport and the interest in it and the fact that Los Angeles is where it is is so big um, you know, it, it, building dedicated ice right here, right now, um, was really calculated on our parts to try to be poised by the time there, the next Olympics come up and in a post COVID world, let's keep our fingers crossed that, that, you know, something along those lines continues to drive this interest to the sport. Um, but we have the, the potential here, I think, to also really change the demographic of the sport in this country. You know, L.A. is such a multicultural city um, and curling has been predominantly extremely white and it's time to change that. And so Los Angeles, you know, getting a curling club right now with all the conversations happening uh, you know, we have the potential to really open up this sport to a lot of demographics that don't otherwise, um, you know, have not been, been marketed to, have not been targeted, have not been included in the sport. And so now is a great time to, uh, you know, really change that. So that's a great point. Uh, so we've been talking a bit about that on our podcast too. So do you have any sp specific plans to recruit uh, to different communities? I mean, I think LA is, a, Matt's going to probably correct me here on this, but I believe LA is one of the few uh, minority majority cities. Well, I, I guess a lot of cities are, but California is one of the few minority majority states in the US, right? So it's kind of a very diverse demographic makeup. Um, so are there like specific plans to kind of recruit to different communities or do outreach to different communities, perhaps Latino, African-American communities, um, other, yeah, other communities in the community? No, for sure. Uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we've uh, outreach we've done before um, has been like geographic based where our locations have been. And our new location in Vernon is right in, you know, the South LA historic South LA area of, of Los Angeles. Um, and it's kind of be between that and East LA and right by downtown LA um, easy drive from orange County and all the valleys. And so we have our local neighborhood is gonna just, if we can reflect our local neighborhoods, then we're going to increase our diversity exponentially. And I think that's our main goal is to represent the communities that we're in. So we don't want, we don't want some, a, a kid from the neighborhood to come in and feel like they don't belong in there. I want that, that kid to feel like, or that person, the adult to feel like this is my neighborhood club. It looks like my neighborhood. I like to come here. And so, uh, 
by virtue of that, we're gonna it's gonna mean you know making sure we're we're a place where we're black, Latino, um, uh, uh, Asian Pacific Islanders. You know, we got a big Korean, Japanese, Chinese population, Filipino. Like there's every everyone is here, and so yeah. our goal is to make sure that everyone feels you know welcome and and you know uh, invited there. So. Uh, to the point about spe- we want to get specific in terms of where we go. And so, um, you know, it's looking at, you know, building a relationship with the schools, the local neighborhood chamber of commerce, the uh, street festivals that are happening. Because we take uh, the, the, um, the rock solid productions or floor curling kits. We take that out into the street with our own, you know, uh, floor street curling kit um, that we branded for ourselves with a vinyl banner and a platform. So it, it has some heft to it. And we take those out to, to street festivals and we can take that to the neighborhood street festivals, the ones that, you know, once you start building relationships are, because we also want to make sure we're not, you know, we're not tokenizing neighborhoods. We're not, we're not um, interloping. So it's, it's taking some, we want to make sure we build these relationships to ensure that we're part of the community and not just, you know, trying to pull in people for diversity's sake, because, um, Mm -hmm. you know, once people find us, they like us. And one of the best examples of this is when we were currently in a neighborhood called Panorama city. And it's a misnomer because it's just a neighborhood in the city of LA. Um, but, uh, uh, it's predominantly, uh, Latinx community, um, you know, working class and, uh, but our membership is at that point was, has been very white. And there was a street festival that goes out in, um, that was out in front of the street, in front of the place we curl and right there. Like we knew if we could reach people here, these are people who are, or know this area and they're going to maybe come to it. We did a, a, this event on Sunday morning. And people came, did the, the street curling, and they came back that Sunday night, and it was easily the most diverse group of people we've had in one single, like, learn to curl of the general population, you know, not just like a, some work group that came out all together. And so, and it, and there were literally people we met that day on the, uh, you know, at the festival. So it was just kind of a proof of concept where if we go to where people are, we show them what we do. We invite them to come curl with us. Uh, that's how we start growing this. And then we, you know, we, we bring in the pioneers as members and hopefully create that that um, that relationship uh, further into the community and really make it like a community space for people to go to. You know, it's, uh, all these neighborhoods have that that place you go in the community. The old Canadian um, ideal of you just go to the curling club. We want to make that happen for you know the places in in LA where we are. So the other thing is, I'm wondering if I know that Coyotes Curling Club has the the Golden Wrench, so WCT event. It's actually quite popular with a lot of the the top twenty teams. Is kind of a chance to to play a, an event that earns points, but also go golfing in the middle of the winter. So I'm wondering. Mm-hmm. You know, being LA, being perfect weather all the time, uh, and being being kind of a natural destination. Are there plans to also try to develop some WCT level events or kind of more competitive events? Heck yeah, <laughs> heck yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm. Uh, we decided we made an active decision not to pursue that in our first year upon opening, not to try to like get on the tour immediately. 
Um, but we certainly have talked about it with various people uh, and, and look forward to continuing that conversation. Um, obviously, you know, it sounds like this upcoming season is uh, very up in the air anyways. So, you know, we don't mind having a little bit of time to really dial in our ice, make sure that our stones are in good shape and that, you know, we sort of work out some of the kinks of the facility before hosting an event like that. But absolutely, that would definitely be the goal. Um, you know, we would love to also see, you know, the expansion of some of these televised curling events. Um, like Matt said earlier about being in a media hub, uh, LA is perfect for, for that kind of thing because all of the equipment, all of the people who do that and all of the, um, all of the, the, uh, TV business is already done here in LA. And so we'd love to incorporate, you know, more competitive events and televised events at the facility as well. And we also just want to have a uh, good grassroots events because I'm sure plenty of snowbirds will want to come out to LA in January, do a little bit of curling, go to the beach, play some golf. You know, like uh, a few years ago, I went to um, a little bike ride, New Year's Day, just rode down on the beach, perfect weather. And, you know, other people are complaining about snow and rain. So I think uh, we got lots of opportunities on all levels to be able to provide, uh, you know, curling for people who want to, you know, take advantage of this location. So this one, this question's from uh, Ryan. It's a, I'll admit it's a bit out there, but he he's not he hasn't joined us, but he's he's had me ask it. So uh, he so he wrote to me. I said he wanted to say I know you're partnering with a cold storage company. So I guess first of all, are you partnering with a cold storage company? Yes. Or is that yes? Yeah, okay. So, we, so what, we, what does that involve? We um through our 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 travels looking for buildings um we uh, we had visited a site and then that landlord brought in some of the local um, uh, other uh, business operators that they know of, which was this Hanson Cold Storage, to kind of l see if they have them vet our idea to see if it's going to cause any problems for them as a landlord. And the guys were like, no, this all sounds legit. Actually, we're really into this idea. And so we started talking offline and then uh, their contractors and their their our contractors for this project, as well as other cold storage refrigeration expertise and having that available to us because we have extra space for a, a subtenant uh, area. Um, so yes, we have a cold storage uh, company partner that is um, been working with us this time. Okay. So the second part of, of, uh, of Ryan's question is he said, so he's, and this is another part where you may, may or may want be able to confirm, but we've both heard kind of third hand that the San Francisco Bay area curling club lost out on one of its leases. I think this is before, uh, marijuana was legalized in California, but that basically a grow up beat them out on the lease. And then uh, they found out after the fact. So is that, is that story true? Or is that just, uh, yeah, that's true. One of the many. Okay, yeah. so that's true. Yeah. So yeah, then I, I guess heard one the same story. Do you have? Okay. <laughs> so we sort of confirmed, I guess. And then so then I guess Ryan's Ryan said he's like he wants to know, would it be possible then for a curling club, now that uh, cannabis growing is legal in California, to use its facility in the off season as a grow up, basically? I mean, I don't know anything I about hydroponics or growing um or as a grow up, <laughs> but it feels like the off season would be too short 
to do like any effective uh, growing. I feel like that's kind of a, a year round thing. Yeah, I would. The only thing that comes to mind for me that would make me say probably not is because, um, you know, we're we're up to our eyeballs trying to make sure that we can have a um, license to serve alcohol and have minors in the building. And I know that with um, California laws surrounding legalized marijuana, it's a 21 and up only kind of situation. And they're extremely uh, particular about minors being on the property. And so the location of where some of these dispensaries and grow ups and things like that go has to take in mind proximity to minors. So the fact that we would have minors in the building probably would not allow for that. Although it is some creative thinking, like I wouldn't personally be against it, but I have a feeling it would probably uh, jeopardize our ability to do one business or the other, just the presence of having minors and weed on the same property. And I, I think to get even uh, more um, into the, the weeds, so to speak, on that is that <laughs> there are all the zoning issues that you'll run into with a, a curling club, um, especially in the United States, where you have to kind of really get the city to be on board with what you're doing and explain mm -hmm. to them why it's different from X, Y, or Z. And uh, that in and of itself is usually challenging enough and trying to say, oh, we're also going to be a, a marijuana grow up uh, in the off season. So three or four months out of the year, uh, then it becomes a really like mixed bag of uses. Like, what are you production distribution? What is this space? And and then uh, the thing that's going to tank almost any curling club or make it really expensive or challenging is parking. Like, I, I don't think enough yeah. people think about what the parking requirements typically are for anything. And when you're trying to retrofit a building, especially a, a industrial building, uh, the parking requirements for manufacturing or warehouse or whatever are much different than an assembly space. And depending on the jurisdiction, uh, that in, its, in and of itself can be a non-starter. So we had to skip over a lot of places because you just you just look at it and know they're never going to approve us for curling with this many this little parking spaces like we're going to we need almost double that just to satisfy the requirements, even though we know how it will be used practically on league nights and on weekends or whatever. And uh, being able to kind of make that case and, and, you know, doing that with any kind of certainty is is very challenging, um, you know, cost wise and time wise. So uh, I think it's, it's one of those ideas that I, we've probably thought about that idea at one point. But then once you really start zeroing in, um, mixing uses be, can be really uh, challenging uh, in and of itself, let alone, you know, dispensary versus recreation. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that's a lot of things a lot of places don't really think about is, is what rules does your city have that you don't think about, but will probably or potentially tank your project? So, yeah. Um, I think that's that would probably be the biggest issue of, of you just might not be able to get permission to do that. I think so um, that curling clubs, you know, like like we don't have it so much down here. Our season is going to be a lot longer, for example, than than most Canadian clubs. And um, I know most most Canadian clubs, most Midwestern clubs here in the U.S are typically, you know, they're, they're, they're empty in the summertime or, the, you know, whatever. Uh, but certainly 
getting creative about alternate uses and what your facility can be doing to generate income in the off season is becoming more and more and more uh, important when looking at, you know, how, how do you adapt to, to uh, a changing economy? And I think right now we all have to think about how do we adapt to a post COVID world, you know, for the next few years, um, we might be looking at less income during the year because maybe we can't have as many people in the building. Maybe we can't do as many bond deals as we were planning. Maybe corporate events have to be smaller or uh, things like that. We're going to have to really consider. And, and frankly, you know, in the U.S., our numbers right now are so abysmal. We have to really consider like there could be some delays, there could be some opening and closing, and that could happen a, a number of times uh, in certain communities before this is under control. I think if I were in Canada opening a curling club this year, I would probably feel um, a lot more confident than, than I do here in the United States about the ability to keep the numbers down. But still, you have to worry about outbreaks in your community potentially closing your door for a weeks or a couple of months at a time. And so, um, you know, starting to think about what else you can do with that facility and, and um, thinking about ways to uh, utilize the building when you don't have ice in as well as when you do and other ways of generating revenue. Um, you know, that needs to become you know, pretty standard for every club, I think, in order to make it through what I think are going to be some trying years. Yeah. So I guess, so yeah, I, I definitely agree. We were going through similar conversations here in England. We just had our club meeting this week and it was basically still debating whether or not we can reopen, even though we might be allowed to reopen because things are looking a little better here at the moment. Of course, we don't know if there'll be a second wave, right? Um, so does that, are, are you kind of then also in a similar holding pattern? You're not really sure when you're going to be able to open because of, because of the COVID situation and is it delaying construction as well? Or is it more just a question of, uh, what kind of social distancing measures you'd have to put in place when you do open? Yeah, I think, uh, the, the, the COVID related, uh, delays haven't really hit us at the moment because we've been going through the regulatory process and, uh, some of our other um, behind the scenes stuff. So we haven't really been delayed because of that. So in some ways it's kind of nice where, where we're get we're had this downtime anyway. So if we're going to have a downtime and there's nothing going on, then it doesn't affect us too bad. But we also know that right now we're looking at a time where we're ready to go before the city and the County is ready to go. So we, those, that's when we're starting looking at delays. I guess normally uh, clubs that are moving from uh, arena to dedicated are fundraising, but since you've got private partners, I assume you're not, are you not like looking for fundraising in the traditional sense? Uh, but are there kind of things you need people to help out with? Are there things that are, you want our listeners to help out with the project or are there kind of other promotional activities you have going along with this? Um, well, I think, uh, as the, for Hollywood curling, it's a nonprofit 501c3, they're always taking donations, and that sort of stuff was going to go to fund you know, like junior programs and and other kind of outreach and other membership driven things. So, if it's someone's looking to just help support the club, who's always been maybe providing some entertainment or or been doing some fun stuff, that's always a great place to go to. Uh, for the center, 
um, you know, we're, we're building our social media stuff. So, you know, if we can get YouTube followers specifically, so we can get the custom URL, but also on all the, the platforms, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and then we have a store uh, right now um, because the volumes are low, it's all free shipping. Um, so now is a good time to just kind of, if you want to buy something, you know, get something out there um, or just follow that as we start updating products as well. But those are kind of the main things, unless you want to add something, Liza. Um, no, I mean, if there's somebody out there that absolutely is in love with this idea and, uh, you know, wants to talk to us about investing in it, we do still have a, a little bit of room there. Uh, for some capital investment for the right person to come along. Um, and uh, other than that, no, I think Matt covered it. I mean, you can find us at curling.la. And um, if you look on all the social media, uh, most of it, you'll find us curling.la. Um, and so, yeah, just like like Matt said, just growing our audience and, and getting ready for uh, for what comes next when those doors do get to open. So is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up here? I think, you know, curling is, uh, we have approached the last uh, 10 years or so of trying to make this happen with this attitude of if you build it, they will come, um, you know, to coin that phrase and, and rip it off of a famous movie. But <laughs> Um, you know, we have we have uh, we have seen such tremendous interest every every time it is televised, every time it makes its way into the Olympics, and seeing that this is a sport that speaks to people of you know all ages, all genders, all abilities. Uh, it it's it's one of those things that we're so thrilled to finally have the ability to give it a real home here in Los Angeles and trusting that, you know, once we have that home that uh, allows people to really um, immerse them, themselves in the sport uh, that, you know, we can, we can really help grow it. Yeah. Okay. Well, fantastic. Well, we're really looking forward to how this project develops. Um, hopefully, uh, COVID will end. Sorry, I mean, everything eventually <laughs> ends. Uh, so, and uh, you'll be able to have a really successful launch and we'll be definitely following along and uh, hopefully checking back in for some updates in the future. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks. Hey, for thank us. you for having us. Again, Jonathan, thank you for taking the time to talk to them. Uh, my my life is kind of a mess right now. So that's, I, I've been relying on you a lot to do to do a lot of these things and hopefully things will calm down for me soon and I can actually join in on the fun. Um, what can, so what can folks in Canada who are used to just having access to dedicated curling all the time or at a very close proximity what what can they take away from these two instances with with what's going on in Glasgow and what's going on in Southern California I think okay so first of all since um, curling geek's been talking a lot about this on Twitter and he also kind of raised it on the the episode he did on Game of Stones um, there's been a, a significant um, contraction if you will of curling facilities in Canada over the last few years. I think that if you're a curler in Canada, especially heading into a very bad economic situation over the next couple of years, um, the message you should take away is that it's incredibly difficult to get 
a curling facility off the ground. And so if you play it somewhere that is a dedicated curling facility, the question you should be asking yourself this year and next is what can I do to make sure the place that I play the game I love is financially stable? Um, what can you do in terms of volunteers? What can you do in terms of um, money? What can you do in terms of recruitment? Uh, basically, those are the three things that any kind of curler can has in their capacity to do. Like, what can you do to help bring new people into the club and grow the membership base? That's actually the most important thing. Um, and then what can you do, not just to play, but also to help volunteer at the club and kind of keep the club running. And that can be anything from depending on the club, volunteering with coaching or with the juniors to volunteering to serve on the board, to volunteering to work with fundraisers. And then I think third, like also just be mindful. And I think not just for curling, but it's one of the things I've been talking about with my wife is, um, lots of businesses are hurting, um, right now, obviously. And so I think one of the things we all have to do is be intentional with our spending as in if there's a business especially a small business in your community that matters to you um, make sure you're spending your money there first to help keep that business going rather than you know um, just spending indiscriminately if that makes sense so i think for curling is a similar kind of attitude that if curling is important to you uh, depending obviously on your financial circumstances i know a lot of people are also going to be facing personal financial difficulty then probably the next year or two isn't about just kind of fun time, but putting a bit more work and effort in to, to make that fun time possible. And then if you're a an arena club in the U.S. looking to move to dedicated, what what should the takeaway be? What should the takeaways be here? I think the take what I've observed, and these these kind of stories confirm it, is you probably need a small very dedicated team to pull that transition off. I think a lot of times arena clubs kind of have it as a, as a pipe dream, but really what you need in your club is two or three people who first of all have the determination to make it happen. And secondly, have the right skill set. And so by that, like you with listening to the, the, the LA call and it's like, it turns out that Matt's a, um, city planner. And that's, that sounds like not necessarily the, the best skill set, but actually as it came out during the interview, he's talking about, well, parking's a big issue from a city planning perspective. And so one of the big things any club needs is if they're going to kind of get uh, the facility built is planning permission. So in a certain sense, he has the perfect skill set, right? That he actually knows what all the laws and regs are. He can kind of knows how to kind of talk to the city planners to get permission so we understand you need people with that kind of skill set. You need people with knowledge in real estate. You need people with knowledge in financing. Um, and so if I'm in an arena club that's kind of seriously thinking about trying to go to dedicated ice, it's identifying people in your membership base who have those skills, basically real estate and finance and perhaps a bit of construction as well. Um to be able to put together a team and it's probably got to be a small team. I'd say like four, maybe five people max who are willing to kind of look at the problem from all angles and then be creative about how they go about uh, addressing that problem. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much. And uh, I guess we'll, 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 we'll try to keep rolling these out. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's uh you know, hopefully your uh, domestic situation resolves itself. I'm not, do we want to like put a plug for your house or not? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, buy my house. Uh, buy Ryan's house. Yeah. 
So the, the that, two take that just throw that into Zillow. Just put Ryan's house in Zillow, and it'll Ryan's house in Zillow. Someone buy Ryan's house. Um, what else? Oh yeah, come watch our live stream next week. Oh yeah, we gotta get a thousand views, and Scott's gonna get a tattoo. And uh, anything else we need? Yeah, I still think that we should be allowed to pick the tattoo. Well, I think if a thousand viewers show up in the comment section, I think he'll just face the peer pressure and he'll just have to go with whatever the crowd wants. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, so tell your friends to watch. We're going to make Scott get a tattoo. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.